Good morning! Good to see everybody. Um, I hope your, your Labor Day weekend is going well so far. And I hope you all who are joining in online uh, this morning, you're also having a good Labor Day weekend. I don't know about you guys, but I'm sure loving the weather. I'm so great that that oppressive humidity has lifted, has lifted. And um, fall is my favorite time of the year, and fall is definitely right around the corner. I don't know if you guys have been following the news on this, but um, there's actually a heat wave out west. And uh, yesterday I saw the weather forecast for Denver. Um, we often think that North Carolina, our weather is, is really crazy and kind of up and down. Um, today's high in Denver is supposed to be 106 degrees. But get this, Tuesday, it's supposed to drop to 30 degrees and they're supposed to have a blizzard. So I thought that was really interesting, uh, you know, really kind of crazy. Again, we think the weather here is kind of nuts. Um, but Denver, I have some friends that live out there and Denver's weather is, is, is pretty all over the place. But um, anywho, I'm enjoying the, the lack of the humidity and feels really good. The air this morning was a little crisp. And so again, I hope tomorrow, uh, if you have tomorrow off, that you will enjoy a rest from your labor and have a wonderful day doing whatever it is that you're going to spend your day off doing. So with that, we're going to get into the message this morning. And so if you're tuning in uh, at home or here as you're uh, with us this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 13. And um, if you are joining uh, with us for the first time online, we're so glad that you're spending your Sunday with us. And if this is your first time, we are currently in a series where we are studying the book of Revelation. And over the past couple of weeks, we've come to the section in the book of Revelation that is commonly referred to as the seven letters to the seven churches. And these seven churches that we find uh, in this section in chapters two and three in the book of Revelation, uh, it's to those churches that the book of Revelation was originally written to. And so over the past couple of weeks, we uh, took some time to look at the church of, in the city of Ephesus. And today we are going to look at the church in Philadelphia. And folks, not to be confused with Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yeah, not, not the same city who's, you know, the hometown of the Italian stallion Rocky Balboa. Right, not, not the Philadelphia that's the home of the Eagles and, and wonderful cheesesteak sandwiches, but rather the church in Philadelphia that existed some 2,000 years ago in what was then Asia Minor and what is now today modern-day Turkey. And although the, the U.S. city of Philadelphia has really nothing to do with this passage or this church that we're going to look at, other than the city of brotherly love here in the United States was actually named for this specific church. So there is a little bit of a connection there, but um, you know, again, this is dealing with an ancient church. And so if you would go ahead and turn there, um, I'll go ahead and let you know we're gonna spend a couple of weeks looking at the church in Philadelphia. I'm gonna read through the entire passage and we're gonna break it up. There's a couple of things that, that I really wanna to tend to this morning. And then, like I said, we'll start looking at this church and we'll finish looking at the church in Philadelphia next week. So here we go, here's what we read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens 
and no one will shut. Who opens and no one opens. Keep going. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be with us here today. Help us to hear what it is uh, that you said to this church and that you also say to us. Holy Spirit, Father God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we just give you our hearts, we give you our minds here this morning as we look at your word, that you would change us, you would help us to become more and more uh, like the Son, like your Son, Jesus. Father, give your people whatever it is that they need here this morning. Father, if we need peace, I pray that you give us peace. If we need a touch of your love, Father, I pray that you would pour out your love on us. If we need wisdom, if we need power, if we need strength, Holy Spirit, whatever it is that we need here this morning, you're the God who provides and sustains. And Father, we pray that you would just give us what you need this morning as we look at your word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. One could make the case that the letter to the church in Philadelphia is one of, if not the most important letter out of all these seven letters to these seven churches. And the reason for that, as you just read, Jesus does not give this church a single word of correction. He does not give them a single word of rebuke. And if you remember, the majority of these seven churches in these letters, Jesus will start out with a commendation, you know, a praise. You guys are doing so great in this area, and I applaud you, but yet I, I have this against you. You, you need to focus on this. You, you need to work on this. And Philadelphia is one of two churches, only the two churches in the seven letters, to where they receive no rebuke at all. There is one church that we're going to end up looking at, Laodicea, that they don't get any praise or props whatsoever. But Philadelphia is one of the two churches, the other is Smyrna, to where all they get is praise. All they get is commendation uh, from Jesus. And so Jesus was very pleased with the church in Philadelphia. And that's quite remarkable when you consider this interesting statement from Jesus in verse 8. If you want to put that next slide up. Again, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have but little power. Now, folks, that's not a rebuke. 
Jesus is not rebuking them. Jesus is actually complimenting them for their little power. Now, Jesus isn't saying that, that having little power is always a good thing. He's simply saying that having little power isn't always bad. And when Jesus speaks of this church having little power, he's not talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about the power of God, you know, moving and working in their hearts and lives. In fact, you know, we're going to see this church moved mightily in the power of God. They were immersed in it. The kind of power that they had little power in that Jesus is talking about is the kind of power that the world envisions power as being. Right? They didn't have wealth power. They didn't have influence power. You know, they didn't have fame power. That's the kind of power that Jesus is talking about that they were little in. Right? This church also, they, they didn't have a lot of resources. They didn't have a lot of manpower. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have any of the things that the world would look at them and be impressed with them by from the outside. And so Jesus says, you know, look, you, you don't have a whole lot of that. You're, you're not a mega church. You are a mini church. But in spite of their lack of power, it, it, it did not prevent them from being faithful to God. Jesus says to them, you have kept my word. You, you have remained faithful. You, you have patiently endured. And in spite, of, in spite of your lack of resources, in spite of your, your lack of influence and, and power, and in spite of you know, facing persecution that has come your way, you did not deny my name. People threatened you, people mocked you, people made fun of you, people threatened to kill you, but you hung in there, you remained faithful in spite of your size, in spite of your lack of money and manpower. You know, they, such things proved to be no obstacle from you guys doing great things for the kingdom of God. You all have little power, but that has not hindered you in the least from standing firm and proclaiming my name. So folks, obviously this little church had a lot of power. They had a whole lot of power. And the kind of power that they had is, is the power, the only kind of power that can come from the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, obviously Jesus knows that, that, that being a church of little power it has the potential to invite bitterness and envy in the hearts of people that are made up of, of such a church. And, and I know this to be true. Why? Because I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for a while. And me being a pastor, I, I know a lot of other pastors, especially within the Vineyard movement. And, and I heard a lot of this when I was an area leader for the Vineyard for our region you know, a couple of years ago. And when pastors get together, you know, you can kind of let your hair down a little bit and you can open up and, you know, oh, this is how we, this is, oh, this is how I'm feeling. And folks, it's very tempting for pastors to, to look at other churches that, that would be considered, you know, to have a lot of power. 
You know, a mega church, look at all these people, look at all these resources, look at all this money. And, and it's very tempting to be able to look at such churches and to start to envy. And they go, well, why? You know, we just don't have the resources. I heard this a lot from, from pastor friends, Todd. We just don't have the resources. We just don't have the manpower. We don't have the programs like these other churches down the street, these big churches. And man, I'm, I'm just so envious. And there can be a lot of pressure and a lot of shame if a church is small. And pastors feel a lot of pressure, you know, to, to not remain small. But it's very interesting when you think about that. Because folks, the, the majority of churches in America are small. The majority of churches in America have around 75 to 100 members. I mean, seriously, go and look at the, the statistics. Over 85% of all churches in America have roughly around 75 to 100 members in it. And folks, don't get me wrong, I have nothing against mega churches. Nothing. But folks, at the same time, you know, for those churches that have thousands of members and they have multi-million dollar budgets and, and they have all of this, you know, apparent power and, and influence, they are the exception and not the rule. It may not seem that way, but it really is because, again, the majority of churches in America are, are roughly around 75 to 100. And believe it or not, I mean, I know with COVID, our, our numbers, a lot of people are not coming back yet. You know, we're actually a little larger than the average church. When everybody shows up, we have about 125, 130 people. So we're actually larger than the majority of churches in America. Go figure, you know, you wouldn't think that, but, but, but we are. And so, and again, this is true for most of the pastors that I know. They, they pastor around 75 to 100, maybe a little less, maybe a little more in the churches that they pastor. And again, it can be very tempting. It can be very, you know, tempting to, to be envious. And, and when you're a pastor of a small church, you know, if a family moves or if a family leaves, it can be devastating. Oh! And so they have little power. And Jesus knows that this was also the case in Philadelphia. They were a small church. In fact, they were probably smaller than 75 to 100 people. If you know your history, most of the churches, you know, in the early church were right around 35 to probably about 75 people. So again, this, this was a small church, and, and Jesus is aware that, that resentment can rise up in the hearts of people in, in a mini-church, to where it can be tempting to say, we've sacrificed so much, we're, we're doing so much, we're sacrificing so much, and yet we don't seem to get anything in return. But folks, evidently the church in Philadelphia, they did not give in to that temptation, which begs the question of why? Why did they not give in? And I'll tell you why. It's because that they were the recipients of genuine, life-changing, supernatural power that comes by way of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
And that got me thinking this past week. You know, as I, as I was preparing for today's message, I, I began to think that, you know, why is it that the life-changing supernatural power of the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be, you know, as present in as many churches or, or is, you know, in the lives of individual Christians as that we would think or, or hope for? And so as I was praying, as I began to think about and wrestle through this question, I, I came up with four responses to that question. You know, maybe there's more, but these are the four that, that I came up with. And, and why isn't the power as present as we think or we would hope for? Well, one, because sometimes a lot of people, they, they don't believe in this power. They simply just don't believe that they can operate and live in this same type of Holy Spirit power that the church in Philadelphia did. They don't think that this power is available. You know, you've probably heard of the term of cessationists. To where some people think, you know, this, when you look at the early church and how the Holy Spirit moved and did all this powerful stuff, well, that, that was just for back then. You know, the Holy Spirit moved in power and, and empowered the early church, you know, way back then in Bible days. But I, I just don't, you know, know if that same type of power is, is for us in the church today. And so a lot of Christians, they just go through outliving their own Christian experience just out of their own power and out of their own efforts. And then the second reason is this, is that they're afraid of it. They're afraid of the move and the power of the Holy Spirit. Around this time last year, I officiated uh, a funeral for a friend of mine. And his mother had passed away. And so I, you know, as we were preparing for the funeral, I got together with him and his stepdad. And as we were, you know, again, planning for the service, the, the stepfather said to me, now, Reverend Oakley, called me Reverend. We hear that a lot. Reverend Oakley, I don't want any of that holy roller, holy ghost, tongue talking stuff uh, during the, the funeral here. That stuff gives me the heebie-jeebies. Just give me a, a simple scripture or two and, and then a simple prayer, and, and that will be, you know, F-I-N-E fine. That's all I need. I don't want any of that Holy Ghost stuff because it, it sort of freaks me out. And so after saying that, I said, first of all, sir, you know what? You don't need to call me Reverend Oakley. You can call me the great Reverend Oakley. <laughs> I didn't say that at all, actually. I'm kidding. I didn't say that to him. But again, some people, they are absolutely terrified of the move and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit because we don't pray for it. Amen. You know, Scripture is very clear. You have not because you ask not. There, 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 I mean, hey, read your Bible. I, I can show you in several places there's a definite correlation between prayer and the move and the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't experience because some people don't pray for it. But then the fourth answer I came up with is one that stuck with me. And, and I, I will say that in my experience, this is probably the main contributor to why we don't experience the power of the Holy Spirit like this church in Philadelphia 
did. And that fourth reason is this, is because most of us don't live the kind of lives that require it. Let me say that again. We don't experience the power of God as we should because we don't live lives that require it. We don't take risks. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, used to say, you know, do you know how to spell faith? You spell it R-I-S-K. Risk. There's a definite correlation between Faith and and risk. We oftentimes don't risk. We don't oftentimes step out in faith. We we don't pray. We're we're, we're not desperate. We're often self-reliant. We we, we don't share our faith with with those who, who, who don't know Jesus. And again, I know I'm, I'm tempted to do this too, but, but in my experience, I think most, a lot of Christians, you, you know, it, we don't like to venture outside of our comfort zones. We, we like to stay comfortable. We, we, we don't experience the power of God as we should because if we're honest, oftentimes we will only venture out and do things uh, whose outcome we can predict. Right? If I know how things are going to turn out on the back end, well, well, then I may take a risk. Then I may step out in faith. But, but it, it's that uncertainty that, that bothers me. And You know, Jesus, I, I so would love to get out of the boat and walk on water with you. But, but Jesus, that means I'm going to have to get out of the boat first. And that's a little, that's a little scary. And as a result, I would say a good number of of modern day Christians, we've gotten comfortable and and we've come to the point to where we actually accept living this way. Living without the same kind of power and move of the Holy Spirit that this church experienced. And and, and folks, I want to challenge us on that. I, I want to tell you, know, look, there's no guilt. I'm not trying to make everybody feel bad here. But obviously, sometimes when we come to the Word of God, we have to be honest. We, you know, we have to look at certain things. And there's no condemnation, but I want to challenge us as a church. And I'm not saying that we don't ever move in the power of the Holy Spirit. But I do think here at Gate City Vineyard, I, I think God wants more. I think God wants to move more in in, in our midst and he also wants to move more in your life. And and the way that he does that right now, where we're at, is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to challenge you, start praying. You know, God, would would you cultivate a desire and a desperation and a hunger in my life to live in your power and under your, your, your influence? And God, would you help me to take risks sometimes to do great things for you and for your kingdom? Would you help me to take steps to to live more of a life that would require me to trust and to be desperate for you to move? Because if you ain't going to move in this area, then ain't nothing going to happen. 
And we're going to come back to this at the end of the message. Now, when we look at this church in Philadelphia, it's good to know that size doesn't define success. Or at least in the way that God defines success. And again, folks, don't get me wrong. There, there's, there's nothing sinful about being big. But at the same time, there's nothing sinful or deficient in regards to being small. God loves small churches just as much as he loves big churches. And so the, the small church, you know, the, the, the church in Philadelphia, it was small. It had very little power, very little influence in regards to, you know, the, the world's idea of power. And the temptation could have been... You know, Jesus, do, do you love us? You know, there, there could be a temptation for self-doubt. Jesus, do you, do you love us in the same way that you love some of these other bigger congregations that, that appear to have more? And I think this is one of the reasons Jesus encourages them in the way that he does in this letter. And as we've just read, there, there are several promises that Jesus makes to this church in connection to their faithfulness to them. And folks, we're going to look at the majority of those promises next week. Because there's one promise that we need to spend a little bit of extra time on that is mentioned in this passage. And I'll go ahead and let you know this promise that we're going to look at that Jesus promises to them may get me in a little bit of trouble. You're watching from home. How about typing in Reverend Oakland is Reverend Oakley is going to get into a little bit of trouble this morning. That's right. Risk. There you go. Some of you are not going to like me over the next 10 or 15 minutes or so. You're not going to like what I have to say. But needs to be said. And I know some of you are thinking, what is he talking about? What is he going to say that's going to get him into so much trouble? Well, let's find out. Put up verses 10 through 11. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. What am I talking about here? It would be my guess that um, a lot of us in here, a lot of you watching online, you may have grown up in a church. You may have been taught growing up to believe in something what is called the pre-tribulation rapture. And folks, that was my view too, that I, I held to a pre-tribulation rapture view for the first three or four years of my faith. Why? Because I wasn't raised up in the church, in the first church that I came to and was a member of that I loved. That was the view that they held. That was all that I heard. And so the big idea of, of the rapture, pre-tribulation rapture view is this. It states this, is, is, is that just before Jesus returns to planet Earth, 
There's going to be a period. There's going to be a season of great trial and great tribulation that is going to come upon the earth. There's going to be persecution. You know, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. There's going to be mass oppression. There's going to be mass violence. And God is going to pour out his judgment upon planet earth. And just before this happens, during that seven-year time, Jesus will secretly come in the clouds. And for those believers who are still alive, they will be called up into heaven for a period of seven years, escaping all the H-E double hockey sticks that is breaking loose on planet Earth. And, and, And they will be removed from that trial, that tribulation that comes upon the Earth. I know we have some Star Trek fans here. You're probably quite familiar if you're a Star Trek fan with Beam Me Up, Scotty. The rapture view is very similar to Beam Me Up, Jesus. Beam Me Up. Get me out of here. And folks, even if you you didn't grow up in a church that taught this view, you've seen it. If you're familiar with the Left Behind novels in, in the movie series, All of that is the pre-tribulation. You know, all the planes start, people disappear. Planes start crashing. People, their their clothes are just, you know, it's like, where are all these naked people going? You know, their clothes are just laying all over the place. You know, that is the pre-tribulation rapture view. For those of you who are a little older, how many of you remember Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth? The rapture view was presented and that, and, and again, too, and I held this view for the first, you know, three or four years of, of my walk. Because, again, that, that's all that I had been taught. But it's kind of interesting. I began to change my view, you know, right around a couple years after the first Gulf War. And if you remember back during that time when the Gulf War was going on, there was a lot of end times talk going on. Oh, this is it. Saddam, how did George Bush call him? Saddam, Saddam Hussein. People, Saddam Hussein, he's the Antichrist. This is, this is going to be Armageddon. This is, this is it. And so when that didn't happen, it really kind of, wait, I'm a new Christian, I'm being told all of this, you know, but it's something, we're still here. So I began to research, I began to read more, and and I began to change my view on this. And the church that I was a part of at this, you know, during this time, it was a part of their statement of faith. They held to a pre-tribulation rapture view. And I remember the first time that I began to let people know what I was thinking. And so we were having a Bible study one night. You know, this church, this great church, great people. And, you know, the end times weren't even the, the topic for discussion. But we started talking about it. And, and you know, any time that you start talking about the end times, the rapture is sure to come up. So everybody started talking about the rapture. And they said, Todd, what do you think about the rapture? What do you feel? Uh... I don't think I believe it anymore. I, I, I don't think it's scriptural. Folks, after saying that, you would have thought that I had denied Jesus Christ rising from the dead after saying that. I, I, and, and, you know, again, I understand their response. 
Because there, there, there are certain doctrines that, that people have been taught and believe that, that they hold so dear that if you begin to question, you know, that, that doctrine, it, it's as if you're pulling the rug out from underneath their, their life. And folks, these people loved me. But when I began to sit and question the, the, this, this doctrine, you, you would think that they would want to take me out after the, the Bible study was over in the backyard and stone me to death. This is one of the reasons why I left church. I mean, this was right before I fell in the vineyard. And, you know, people would start talking, you know, I don't, um, I don't know if he's saved anymore. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't believe in the rapture. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, I could have denied the deity of Jesus and probably would have gotten a better response. And, you know, there's a reason for that. And where we're at right now with the, with the pandemic and, and, and the state of the world, I'm seeing a lot of it. Not from anybody on here. But I'm seeing a lot of my friends I know who, who hold this view, and you can see it on Facebook, to where the sentiment is, oh, it's, it's, it's bad. It may get worse. It's going to get worse one day. But glory to God, God's going to beam me up, and I'm going to get out of all this mess before I have to suffer through anything. Folks, I'm going to say more about this in a moment, but in a moment, but folks, the, the, the Bible does not teach an escapist mentality or theology. Rather, the Bible teaches an endurance theology. An endurance mindset. And I know this is hard. But folks, if you and I, if we think that we are somehow exempt from what millions of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing around the world right now, in places like North Korea, in you know, Syria, in, in the Sudan, in China, in Indonesia, in other places around the world, and what our fellow brothers and, spirit, uh, brothers and sisters have experienced throughout the centuries, throughout the church age. Oh, I'll, I'll never have to face persecution or go through a trial or a tribulation you know, for my faith because I'm going to escape all of that. Folks, that's not biblical. It's, it's really not. And, and we need to recalibrate our thinking on this. Again, God calls us to endurance, not to escapism. And so you're probably thinking, well, why are you bringing this whole rapture thing up right now? Because those who hold towards a pre-tribulation rapture view, they will cite, this is one of the most single, you know, 
most important passages that they will cite to to try to prove and to say that, that this is this is how my view you know is correct this is why I hold this view because what what is Jesus is saying here to where he's saying I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world those who hold the rapture view this is one of the, there's really only two passages We'll get more into that in a couple of weeks, but there's really only two passages that people who hold the rapture, pre-tribulation rapture view will point to, and this is one of them. This is one of the main ones with what Jesus says right there. That's where this whole doctrine comes from. So for the next few minutes, I know some of you guys are seething at the mouth right now. So, Ten more minutes here. Ten more minutes here. But here's the thing. We're, we're going to consider, is that what Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus in this passage promising this church and promising Christians that they're going to escape some great tribulation period in the future? And I will go ahead and tell you no. I'll give you a few reasons. First of all, is this is again, you know, the notion that any Christian is somehow exempt or excused from, you know, tribulation or, or persecution. Again, it's not biblical. In fact, Jesus Christ Himself said that those who follow Him may experience tribulation and persecution. You, you could, but don't count on it. No, in fact, Jesus said that those who follow them or follow him, they will at some point or another in their walk with him experience some sort of tribulation or some sort of persecution. It's inevitable. Even if the persecution or the tribulation that you and I will experience because of our faith, even if it's mild in the sense that people are going to treat you differently or think you're crazy because you are placing your faith and, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at some point we are going to experience some form of persecution, some form of tribulation. And so this word for tribulation in the book of Revelation, again, especially as we start getting into the next few chapters over the next couple of weeks, there's a lot of tribulation that's mentioned. And that word for tribulation in Revelation and the word for tribulation all throughout the New Testament is the Greek word flipthis. How about everybody say, seriously, Hard word to pronounce. Starts with a TH. Flipsis. You guys watching at home, see if you can spell it. Flipsis. And so Jesus in, in the Gospel of John 16.33 says, In this world you will have tribulation or flipsis. Now it's probably even harder to say it with while you're wearing a mask too. 
The Apostle John, in the very opening chapters of Revelation in chapter 1, he greets everyone with a greeting that says, I am your fellow brother and partner in Flipthis, tribulation. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says that we are to rejoice in our Flipthis. Why? Because God is going to zap us and remove us from all the tribulation and persecution? No, we can rejoice because God will preserve us in the midst of what is going on there. And so the promise that Jesus is making here, I will argue, is for spiritual protection in the midst of physical tribulation. Jesus says to his people then, and I think he says to people, his people in every age, that, that he will provide sufficient and you know support and strength and sustenance and to pre preserve our faith in the midst of persecution and trial. Whenever we whenever we find ourselves in such situation, that he will preserve us. Amen. And folks, I know it's hard to fathom here. And don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't have some martyr complex to where, let's just, yes, 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 I want to be fed to the lions, or as I talked about a couple of weeks back, and I want somebody to drill a hole in my head and pour lead into my brain. You know, I, you know, look, I'm not wanting to run right out and do all that stuff, but at the same time, there's no, there's no promise that you and I won't ever face Something similar to that. And folks, I know it's hard when, when you start to think. It's hard for me. When I sit and start to think about facing, you know, not only what the early Christians had to face, but also, again, what millions of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are having to face right now. To where you say, God, how would, what would I do? How would I, how would I handle that? As I was thinking about that this, this, this week, God said, well, why don't you talk to some of the people that are facing and going through what they're right now? They will probably tell you, Todd, you would be able to face it and to endure it in the same way that I am. And that is because Jesus is more than capable to sustain, to preserve, to empower, and to protect from a spiritual standpoint in the midst of facing such tribulation and hardship, that he can sustain your faith. And so, that same promise is for us, too. Now, one of the things that I get, and, and I, I have friends that I, I respect that still hold to this view, 
And, and one of the pushbacks that, that I'll hear is, is Todd, well, listen, the, the, the only way that Christians can be, you know, spiritually preserved and, 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 and you know, taken care of, you know, during tribulation like this and, you know, if, if you know, during this time, if God, you know, kind of, you know, the judgments take place and all hell breaks loose on earth, the only way that, that such Christians can be preserved in their faith is to remove them from the earth. Really? You know what's interesting? And one of the things that I'll say back and retort in a friendly, loving way is that go back and consider the book of Exodus. You guys remember the 10 plagues? Did God remove Israel, the people of God, from that scenario when God brought judgment to the nation of Israel. No, they were still, they were right in the midst of that as God was doing what he was doing. But God still preserved them. Let me point something out to you here in this verse. So he says, I'm losing my place here. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I will keep you from. In the Greek, in the original text, keep from the two words that are Greek words there. There are only two places in the entire Bible where this keep from is mentioned. One of it's right here. And the second place this, this keep from is mentioned is in the Gospel of John chapter 17. If you want to put that scripture up. And so this is Jesus. This is the upper room discourse. And this is Jesus praying to the Father. And he says this. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Again, Father, I'm not asking you to remove my disciples from planet Earth. Notice the contrast here. But that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from. Same thing in Revelation. What Jesus is praying to the Father in the upper room discourse, he's using the same Greek words that he says to the church in Philadelphia. I will keep you from. So again, and you read, as you read this, I want you to notice very clearly, Jesus doesn't ask the Father to rapture the disciples out of planet Earth. Now, Jesus says, listen, Father, while they are here, will you protect them from, will you preserve them from the devil? He is praying for their spiritual protection in the midst of the onslaught of the enemy. Right, again, again, notice, you know, the keep from, it is contrasted with the notion of physical removal. It doesn't 
mention physical removal. It is the actual opposite of physical removal. And again, I would argue Jesus again is saying the same thing to the church in Philadelphia when he's saying, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. Which brings us to the question of is what is this hour of trial that is being spoken of here in, in Revelation 3? Again, those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture you know, viewpoint, they will say that this trial is that great tribulation period, seven years before Jesus returns, when, when, when all heck breaks loose and, and you know, Christians get raptured up. But folks, that's not what is being said here, and I'll tell you why. Because whatever it is that Jesus is saying here, whatever it is that Jesus means by hour of trial, it had to be relevant to the Christians in first century Philadelphia. Because that's to whom the promise was originally given. So for those who will say, again, you know, this is some future tribulation that happens some 2,000 years, maybe even more out in the future, just before the second coming of Jesus, how would that have any sort of relevance or application to the original audience and the promise that the, that the church that this was made to? It would mean absolutely nothing to them. Let, let me put it this way and just ask yourself this question. Does, does it not strike you as, as odd that, that Jesus would promise a church in Asia Minor in the first century that they were going to be protected from an event that neither single one of them would be alive to experience? I mean, again, the, the, the protection here, it had to be something that they were currently experiencing right then and there. Not some event that would happen 2,000 years or maybe even uh, 3,000 years later. Because, again, the promise was made specifically to this church and it had to be something that they were facing right then and right there. Can you see that? Can you see the dilemma that a pre-tribulation rapturist who points to this passage as being proof of that view? They, they're going to have to do some serious juggling there to try to figure that one out. Here's what I think what's being described here, and we're, we'll get more into this in, in a few weeks. I think the hour of trial that is being talked about here, tribulation, the flipthus, the tribulation has already begun. Remember, folks, the book of Revelation was written to the early church, and they were about to, and many of them had already started experiencing tribulation and persecution and, and martyrdom. This, this flipsis that is being, you know, 
expressed here is what accounts for Peter being crucified upside down. It's what accounts for Paul being beheaded and also just the mass persecutions that took place during the early church. And I would say that the hour of trial, folks, is the whole church age. From the time that Jesus went and ascended to the Father, sends the Holy Spirit to birth the church, all the way from the time when Jesus returns. That in this in-between phase between the first coming, the second coming, the kingdom coming to its complete fruition, that this is the time of trial and tribulation for the church. And folks, listen, I am not denying I am not denying that just preceding the second coming of Jesus in, in which the, the, the thlipsis or the tribulation, uh, you know, will intensify. I'm not saying, I'm not denying that. In fact, as we get further along in here, I think tribulation, persecution, it, it, the closer that we get to Jesus' second coming, you are going to see that stuff increase. And it's not going to just be a local thing. It's going to be global. I'm not denying that at all. But Jesus here is talking about something that the church in Philadelphia was already immersed in. And so Jesus says to them, listen, and he says to us, whatever you know, persecution or tribulation it is that you and I will face. He says, listen, don't despair. I will uphold you. I will preserve you. I will empower you. And I will help you to the other side all the way through. Amen. And so I, I, I close with this. Jesus says to them, I am coming soon. Now, before, before I get in, let me say this. This whole me presenting this rapture thing here. I, look, I'm not trying to get you to believe what I believe. You know, if you don't want to believe that and, and that's what you've taught, been taught and, and you want to hold on to that, okay, that's fine. In, in fact, if, if we're still around seven years before Jesus comes back and then one day I find myself, you know, in the middle of nowhere floating up in the air and I see you on the way, I will say, you were right and I was wrong. I don't think I am. And folks, the real issue is not so much about trying to get, you know, doctrine correct. It's the effect that this doctrine can have, again, to where it breeds an escapist type theology. That I don't have to ever go through anything difficult or hard because Jesus is just going to beam me up and, and I'm going to get out of here. And, and, and folks, that's just that's not biblical. That, that's my bigger concern is that, you know, pray about it, think about it. If that's the view you hold, consider some of the things that, that you know, I mentioned here this morning. And just pray about, it. you know, here at the Vineyard, look, we, we don't have a statement of faith about our position on the rapture. I personally, again, don't hold to it. But you don't have to be a member of Gate City Vineyard Church and deny the rapture. If you want to hold on to it, you, you can. We're, we're not going to divide over that. We can debate in a, in a very loving 
Wait. Capiche? Still, do you guys hate me? No? Okay. I know you guys don't. All right, so Jesus says this. I close with this. Jesus says to them, I'm coming soon. Well, what does he mean by that? You know, some people will say that he's referring to the second coming. Is that what he's referring to? It could. But I think what he's saying to them is this. Right? If you remember, if you look throughout some of these other churches, you know, the churches that, that Jesus, oh, uh, you know, look, I need to bring some correction. Jesus said that he is coming to them in the form of correction or loving discipline. So I think what Jesus is saying to this church in the Philadelphia, it, it's a spiritual coming. Because again, they didn't do anything wrong. Jesus just gives them praise and props. And, and so Jesus is not coming to them in discipline or correction. I think the coming that Jesus is talking about here, it is a spiritual coming to them. To where, you know, there, there's an outpouring of, of God's presence in reality to where their, you know, their awareness of God's presence in reality in their life becomes much more aware. To where they sense it and they can see and they can feel and that they know that the presence that Jesus has come. Right? We know this. Scripture is very clear. What does it say? Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. So again, I would say this, this coming that Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon, is listen, you guys are desperate, you, you have little power, but you're crying out, you're calling to me, you're leaning into me, you're desperate for me and for my power and for my sustenance to encourage you and to strengthen you. And you know what, guys? I am coming to you soon to give you what you need to face whatever it is that you are going to face in this world, whether it be trial, tribulation, or persecution. I will uphold you through it. And folks, that same promise to where God's presence and God's power and his spirit poured out into this church in the first century. You know what, folks? The same is true for us in the 21st century as well. Yeah. Yeah. So worship team comes back up. Let's stand. And I just want to ask you to, as you're standing, just close your eyes. There's nothing magic. If you're at home watching, you can do this in, in your living room or in your kitchen. You know, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit, it's, you know, there's no formula to it. You just ask. Just ask. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you know, if you have an earthly father and, and you ask for a fish or an egg, if you ask for that, would your father, would your earthly father give you a scorpion or a snake instead? And Jesus said, your heavenly father who, who is, you know, there's more good. I know that's, that's bad English, but who, who, who is 
more loving, more kind, more compassionate, will he not give you more of the Holy Spirit if you just ask? You just ask. We don't have to earn it. It's not about being good enough. It's just really simply, just God, would you cultivate in my heart a, a desire and a longing to, to lean upon you, to lean into you. I know the world is difficult and it's hard. It's hard to be a Christian. And, and I will say we are living in days and times over the past 10 years, 15 years, even here in America, it, it has become much more difficult to live a Christian life than it has been in generations past. I'm not saying that we are experiencing what other Christians are experiencing around the world, but I think we all have to agree it has become much more difficult to be a Christian. But that's okay, because hopefully what that does for us in a good sense is it creates more of a desperation for us to lean on and depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, right now, I just pray. You tell us we have not because we ask not. You tell us to draw near to you and you will draw near to us. So Father, again, I just pray, you know the hearts of every person here. You know what every person is, is that they're facing. Whether it be a trial, tribulation, persecution. You say that when we come to you and we draw near to you again, that you will draw near to us. And so Father, just like the, the little church in Philadelphia, the, the, they didn't have a whole lot of power in regards to the world's power. They had your power. And because they had your power, that means that they were powerful. So Holy Spirit, right now, as your people, where we're at, whether we're watching at home or here in the sanctuary, we just open ourselves up to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come. Fill us up. Fill us up with your strength and your power, with your peace, with your love, with your joy. Help us to be a people in a church that is empowered by your presence, a church that endures, that we don't seek to escape, but we seek to endure what it is that you call us to do. Help us, just like the church in Philadelphia, to be faithful to your word and to be faithful to our testimony of who you are and our faith and our trust in you. Whatever it is that we face, Help us to be faithful to you because we know that you are always faithful to us. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd come. Just fill us up, fill us up. From head to toe to the core of our being, I just pray that as we sing this last song, folks, I, I, I pray that we would sing this song as a prayer. And Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.